this morning, uh, and, and one of the reasons I wanted to talk about it is the story uh, in most translations is titled The Prodigal Son, of course. This translation that I came across called the New English Translation actually called it the Compassionate Father. And I thought, what an interesting kind of total perspective shift on this passage that we've talked about probably a thousand times. And so today, I want to dive into the Compassionate Father and take a look at what that can mean for us. Uh, not only for our congregation, our community, but for our world and the kingdom of God as we move forward together. So read along with me. Then Jesus said, there was a man who had two sons. The younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of the property that will belong to me. So he divided his property between them. A few days later, the younger son gathered all he had and traveled to a distant country, and there he squandered his property in dissolute living. When he had spent everything, a severe famine took place throughout that country, and he began to be in need. The word of the Lord. Amen. God, we thank you so much for today, and we thank you for this space. Lord, for this building, this physical space to gather. But God, we also thank you for the spiritual space that you create for us. To come before you as we are willing to learn, willing to grow. And God, we pray for your gift and that blessing this morning. In your son's great and holy name, amen. As Mike mentioned, it's the time of year, aka the start of the year, where we begin having conversations about resolutions, changes, transformations. And it's interesting uh, to me because that seems to kind of be the whole Christian thing all year round, all the time. I don't know if you guys have picked up on that in scripture at all, but it seems to be transformation, life change, renewal is sort of a fairly strong theme from beginning to end. Where you were is probably not where you're going to end up. And in fact, where you're going might not even be able to be understood or imagined. But God's got a plan that's going to take you down some wild, wild roads. But for many of us, you know, it's, you know, it's January 2nd. How many of you guys are still doing, I am going to call you out on this. How many of you are still doing okay on your resolutions? (laughs) Yeah, like I'd have, you know, (laughs) but like, come on, it's the Sabbath. We're going to take a break from that, (laughs) right? It's a day of rest. We'll get back on the resolution tomorrow. Uh, My father-in-law has this amazing line where he always says, yeah, I'm starting my diet on Monday. doesn't matter what day of the week. He's always, it's always on, he's always starting his diet on Monday. Change and transition is something we love, and these resolutions are always kind of playful and fun, and, and it's, you know, there's two giant spectrums kind of on this thing, where, where, or two ends of it, I should say, where you kind of have a group of people over here who are endlessly optimistic about the potential for the future, right? 2022, this is the year. This is it. Finally, we've made it, and we're going to, you know, I've prepped everything. We're all ready to go. And then there's the people on this end of the spectrum who tend to kind of look over at that end of the spectrum and just kind of go, you guys are fools. <laughs> you will accomplish nothing. You may even take a couple steps backwards. Why would you ever put yourself through this? And for those of us who, who, are, who are kind of in the middle, every year we kind of go through this, all right, we got this, we can do this. And then like by January 2nd, what have I done? What am I thinking? And we kind of bounce back and forth. And then eventually, maybe by the middle of February, we sort of like, all right, I tried enough. I did enough. That's fine. And so then we, we kind of 
step away from that anxiety of maybe failing. And then Lent shows up a couple weeks later, and then there's another invitation to deny yourself and give something up, and we're brought all the way back to that anxiety of failure. (laughs) Change and transition is terrifying because it is all about the anticipation of what is to come, and, and, and we sort of have no idea what's coming next. We can kind of hope that when we do all the right things, something will happen, but we just really have, have no, no clue. And, and working with young people, one of the things that I've seen consistently with them, and, and they're actually, they verbalize it at times, and I think it's just sort of invaded society a little bit more than often than not, is there that with the advent of, I shouldn't say it's only technology, there's a lot more happening, um, but there is a sense that somebody's always watching. And I don't know if you guys have that feeling. I could guess you probably do. Because even if, even if you're like me, who like, I post on the internet for uh, my anniversary because survival, and uh, my wife's birthday because of survival, and um, I comment on the photo of my children that my wife posts on their birthday, Survival. And those are the things that I do on social media because I, I, was, I felt so strongly the sense that Big Brother was looking over my shoulder. And I felt so strongly the sense that even, and even when I wasn't worried about myself, I would watch somebody else and then I would begin to play the comparison game. And then, and then again, it was like, oh, I've done nothing, right? Because there's, there's nothing great. There's a great joy in watching somebody succeed at their resolution, right? You, you love the success story, and then by like 4.30, 5.30, 6.30 p.m., you start kind of remembering that it's not your success story. And in fact, it amplifies the failure on your end. Because for young people and for us in this entire world right now, there is that sense that, that failure is the anticipated outcome. And, and we're all just watching and waiting. We're all just watching and waiting to wait till something happens. And even if that's not real, let's pretend that doesn't exist at all. We still think it, and we still can feel it. And that alone can be enough to stop us from stepping into a life change or transition, or even being open to the idea. You know, this word um, despair, have you guys heard of this word? It's a, you know, it's a unique word. It's not one that we often would use. And there's very kind of specific context in which you might even consider using it. Despair is the belief that tomorrow will be the same as today. The belief that this is how it is. This is just what it is. And that belief in of itself can stop anything from occurring or happening moving forward. And it's a uniquely non-Christian belief. I mean, we follow a guy who literally came back to life. I'm telling you what, tomorrow's going to look a little different. (laughs) And it always will. Well, the reason I wanted to talk about change and the prodigal son, the compassionate father, is because I think this, this story offers us a unique kind of case study, sort of like a unique setting that we can kind of probably all relate to to some effect. And I want to warn you right now, I'm not going to really talk about the son's return. I'm sorry. <laughs> Different Sunday. <laughs> I'm not talking about the return. It's just, I, I, I don't know. I'm going to mention it, but it's just not the thing I want to emphasize. What I want to emphasize is the son's departure. I want to, I, I'm curious and intrigued by this interaction that the son had with his father. Because some of you had fathers who would give you the world. 
And some of you had fathers who would have called you silly for even thinking you belonged in the world. And this, this, this picture of the son going to the dad saying, Dad, can I, can I have the inheritance now? That's bizarre. And, and for context, what, you, what I want to help you guys see is, is uh, I'm sure many of you know this. I don't know why I think I'm revealing some magic secret. This isn't anything crazy. When, when dealing with inheritances in, in this time, what would happen is when the father would pass, uh, you would take the wealth of the family and you would take the number of sons. Sorry, ladies. It's a weird time. You take the number of sons, add one, divide the wealth up, and the oldest would get two shares. <laughs> so of these two sons, there's two-thirds going to the oldest son, one-third going to the youngest son. So when the youngest son comes to the table and says, Dad, can I get all this money, please? Just please. I won. I have no idea if he showed up with a business plan. Maybe he's got a hot lead on a new investment. I don't know. This guy's going to go try to figure out his life and, and do whatever the heck he's going to do. But he's specifically asking for one-third of the wealth which ironically would actually have an impact in, on the future implications for the two-thirds of wealth for the brother. Uh, this has direct implications for the family as it is right now. I mean, that's a I mean, come on, people. Have you ever went to your dad and asked for like 600 bucks? Two grand? I mean, some of us have been in those spots. I, 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 you, you're there, you're going you're gonna to ask for help. Okay, and nine times out of ten, sure. When I asked my dad what it would look like for him to give me my inheritance, he laughed at me and said, what inheritance? <laughs> but here's the thing I know about my dad, and this is the gift that I, this is one of the gifts that I've received, is, is he would consider it. He goes, well, okay, well, you know, we'd have to sell the house. We'd have to sell this thing. We'd probably have to liquidate everything. But, but he would consider it. If I came to him, I said, I'm in need, Dad. I, I need this money. I, like, we're going to lose the house. We're going to lose the whatever. He would, he would sell a kidney in a heartbeat. You know, he would liquidate all the assets in order to make sure that we would be okay. That's just the kind of guy my dad is. I cannot emphasize how blessed I am by that. I can't imagine that would reflect all fathers, and maybe not even the father in this setting, because the son didn't come here, as far as we know, in need. The son came to him in, I want to leave. Like, that was the thing. I want to go. I want to get out of here. I want to run away. And I don't know what was so horrible about the home, <laughs> whether it was actually horrible or this young person just sort of experienced it as very dramatic and intense and terrible. I don't know. Because I can't imagine this father who uh, welcomes his son home with love, grace, and kindness on the end of the story was so brutal and unkind that the son needed to leave sooner. And so I don't think this was necessarily like an escaping a bad situation. I think this son just really wanted to go have a good time. And now that changes the conversation. Hey, Dad, can I have $5,000? My buddies are going to Vegas, and I want to go with. Come on. <laughs> That's weird. That's bizarre. And even more bizarre if someone were to say, yeah, sure, here you go. <laughs> Have the money. Go just because we, we know it's not coming back. <laughs> but that's what this father does. At the table, talking to his son, he is having this interaction with his son. is essentially being incredibly rude and offensive in this time and era. I mean, it's rude and offensive now. Uh, but especially so then. Especially because the implications are, this money isn't mine until you're dead. So really, you might as well just go ahead and die because this is all I want from you. 
And this father in that space, we don't see that he fights back. We don't see that he screams and yells or hits the table. We don't see that maybe there's this big dramatic ordeal. But instead, this father in grace and kindness and compassion sees that his son, for some reason, is experiencing a level of suffering that the father can alleviate in this moment. And he does. At great cost to himself. At great cost to himself. There's this incredible person uh, who I just, I mean, if you know her, please introduce me. We'd love to, I'd love to be friends and just, you know, get to, Brene Brown. Anybody hear this name? Brene Brown. I mean, if you've not read any of her stuff, come on, people, get a book. This is such a good, any of her books. All of them are phenomenal. If you like videos, she's on the interwebs as well. You can watch her work. Brene Brown. She's done incredible work around uh, human interaction, shame, empathy, uh, and, and compassion. And in her new book, uh, The Atlas of the Heart, which if any of you are a creative-minded kind of people, the atlas of the heart, you'll hold the thing in your hand and it'll just bring you great joy. It's a beautiful work. Um, she uses this, this definition. She says, compassion is the daily practice of recognizing our shared humanity so that we treat ourselves and others with loving kindness and we take action in the face of suffering. Compassion is the daily practice of recognizing our shared humanity so that we treat ourselves and others with loving kindness and take action in the face of suffering. And this father, seated across from his son, probably thinks his son is being kind of whiny. Maybe a little juvenile. Maybe just straight up greedy and selfish. And the father could fight, but instead thinks to himself, this person is just trying to be a person. And this is, this is how they're going to try it out. I had a pastor uh, who used to say, uh, you know, don't worry about that. They're just not done sinning yet. Like, you don't need to go in and kick the door down because that's not what this guy, you don't need to storm the building and just pull this person out of the pit. They're not done sinning yet. And the Holy Spirit is on the move with more power and authority than you could ever imagine. Compassion is holding that space that allows for that process to exist. You know, because when Big Brother looks over your shoulder in this day and age, there's a certain sense that who I am right now is who I will be forever. That whatever I said when I was 22 might potentially still define me at 47. <laughs> Which, oh my Lord, if you guys ever want to laugh, find my Facebook. Scroll back to the early 2000s. It's phenomenal. It's all nonsense. It makes no sense. I, I just needed, I looked the other day because I thought I'd put one up, but some of them were just so nonsense it would be embarrassing. But one of them in particular was, uh, blue will never be green and red will never mean yellow. Yes, that was something I put on the internet. It's actual nonsense. That was in my mind and I thought I was profound. This is beautiful, you know, and... What? Thank the Lord that's not how I'm defined today. Thank the Lord that not only my parents, my friends, my family, my church, my king has held compassion for me and held space for me and understood that there was growth and transition and change and experience that needed to be had, that there was wisdom that needed to be developed. 
Now, I don't count myself as one of the most wise people in the world. I know don't post silly things on social media, so I've gotten that far. But how do we understand wisdom's role in understanding compassion? You see, there's, there's all these different things that happen with words. Hebrews, the... The Israelites, wow, Hebrews, that was phenomenal. The Israelites, they are uh, very interesting with their words. It's a lot of nuance going on in a lot of their text. If you guys uh, do any digging into it whatsoever, you'll find some, some beautiful pictures that are occurring. But here's one I wanted to make sure that we had uh, before we go. The Hebrew word for compassion is, forgive my pronunciation, rachamim. And the Hebrew word for womb, rachem, derived from the same base and the same root, from the same idea, that maybe, just maybe, compassion is the space where new life is born. Just sit with that for a minute. Compassion shares the same characteristics as the womb, the space where life is born. That is incredible. Talk about linguistics. Come on. That's phenomenal. And what's amazing is compassion is something we can all do. We can see that shared humanity in the people around us, recognizing that the people who don't even see our own humanity are still human, trying to figure out their own experience, trying to have their own understanding of the world, that they are in process. They may not be done sinning yet. Maybe they're not done being superior than us. Maybe they're, who knows what they are. But compassion is seeing the shared humanity that regardless of how you voted, regardless of your opinion on a mask, on a sports team, on name anything. You're a person figuring it out. You're a human having a human experience. You're a human trying to understand. So when we have some of these divisions, how do we find unity again? Compassion. Because one of the things that is terrifying for people now and again, maybe it's not terrifying for you, and I hope it isn't terrifying for you. There is no road back. What does redemption look like today? What does reconciliation look like today? Because I'll tell you what it looks like for young people right now. It doesn't. Because, what, because again, it's, it's who you are today is who you will always be. That despair has found its way into our genetics and into our society and Christians are invited to be the kinds of people that actually say no no tomorrow will be different I will hold space in compassion for you so that new life can be born rather than me stepping in and assaulting you and trying to initiate and force change in your life God has been moving ahead of me and allows new life to be created there if I'm willing to actually step back and look And hold that space without having to do anything. I mean, parents, you get this. Come on. How many times did you watch your kid do something where you're kind of like, oh, gosh. Not again. And you just sat back and had to let it happen. 
Rowan's three and a half years old right now, and I don't know who taught him about Spider-Man. I always felt it was maybe a little too much for a three and a half year old, but apparently he knows a lot about Spider-Man. He knows his stances. He knows how he shoots webs. He, he, he understands. Yeah, he's pouncing all around our house these days. I don't watch Spider-Man with him, so who's telling him? I don't know. Uh, that's weird. But he, so now he shows up, and he's shooting webs all over the place, you know, and, and he's climbing on things. And I'll tell you what, when he's on top of the couch... And I'm thinking, well, he's going to fall. Part of the gift is that I, I get to let him. He gets to hit the ground. He gets to burst into tears. He gets to learn that we will be there when he falls. He gets to learn that when you're high in the air, you should hold on tight. <laughs> he gets to learn that he's not actually Spider-Man. He's just a kid. And the gift in holding that space is that a new thing is born out of this. Maybe not as quickly as we'd like. As many of us, again, know with kids, it seems they need a thousand times, myself, two thousand times to learn a lesson. But if you can hold that space for them and you can hold true to the course, if you can hold compassion and you can allow them to bear new life, what a gift. And maybe this isn't just parents, right? There's a lot of coworkers who we could do without. A lot of people at the office who got some strong opinions about some things. And maybe we can hold compassion in that space. Maybe we don't have to be the one to fight for that change in that moment. Maybe we just need to be the person that says, I see it. I, I understand. I, I get it. I really do get it. I disagree with you. I get it. You're a person. Let's, let's calm down a bit here. In a society that's looking for failure, how can we be the kinds of people that see failure as a part of the process? That becoming human, especially humans that reflect Christ, it requires suffering, sacrifice, and loss, not only on the part of the person in process, but on the part of the person who might know better. That we have to sit back and be responsible for their suffering. Be responsible for what they do when, because we didn't stop them in those moments. How do we hold compassion? Because Jesus himself, when faced with Pontius Pilate, didn't fight back. And I always thought that was odd, right? I mean, that's weird. If someone's going to sit, get you backed into a corner and point their finger in your face. A lot of us, if you're like me, you're the sort of person who says, oh, we're doing that. And you turn it up to 11. You start screaming back. Yeah, you amp it up every time. And Jesus, he, he just stood there. And he held space because how much do you think Pontius Pilate learned about leadership that day? Knowing that he was going to have to lead people after that day. And who was Pontius Pilate after that experience? Who were the Jews to him after that experience? I don't 100% know. I'm not God. But I can, I can assume safely that the Holy Spirit was moving there. That in holding that space for compassion for new life to be born, there was some fruit on the other side. Compassion is the whole thing. The gospel is compassion. You are not stuck. I'm not stuck. My annoying neighbor isn't stuck. But if we can't offer up compassion to other people or offer it to ourselves, what we will begin to do is start to isolate. 
because you become a little more anxious about what other people will think of you. I mean, we've, I, I don't, I mean, this is such a human experience. I don't, you know, what example can I give that you haven't all experienced, right? I mean, this is, when you don't feel like you belong, when you feel like everyone expects you to fail, you know that feeling where you shrink back a little bit. And even worse then, like they kind of push you where you're kind of on your heels a little bit, and then you do fail, and then it's even harder to get back the next time. And the momentum shifts where it's no longer about moving forward and becoming something new. The momentum has shifted to, oh my gosh, back up, back up, back up. They don't want me. I don't belong here. How do we change that? Well, step one, figure out how to give compassion to ourselves. Because as you isolate, and as you feel as if people around you are not compassionate, you begin to think, okay, I need to be on the high defense. And I need to be ready and willing to point out the flaw in so-and-so so that nobody notices the great deep flaw in me. You start to transition the focus somewhere else and you allow someone else to take the attention and suffering that might rightly belong to you. But if we can begin to give compassion to ourselves, those defenses start to come down. And instead of pointing the finger, we get in the trenches with them. This is not something that's done overnight. The father in the story of the, the prodigal son did not just suddenly go, oh, yeah, that's fine. Take a third of the money. That's great. I'm not worried about it. This is awesome. You go have your human experience. This was his, this was his future that he was sending off. He, but he had spent years developing the skill of compassion, the practice of compassion. Because, again, for many of you, you all know this, that when you wake up in the morning, and something silly happens, like you spill your cup of coffee for the third day in a row, which was last week for me, you begin to tell yourself, you are such an idiot. No, you're not. You spilled coffee. Come on. But it happens, and it escalates, and it builds. So how do we begin? If we can't begin to have compassion for ourselves in those spaces, in that small example, what are we doing? Well, maybe you're just not done yet. So as a community, one of the things we get to do is step into this space and we begin to have compassion for ourselves. And if you want to take it up a notch, here's the invitation. Start trying to have compassion for people you hear about in stories. This is a fun one because they're not real. And when you don't have compassion for them, it's okay. My dad always said there's only two people you're allowed to hate on this earth, and it's stormtroopers in Star Wars and Nazis. Those are his rules in our house around hate. I don't get it either. So, you, you, can, you can actively practice with them. Because if you aren't practicing, it's not happening. What's interesting is if you look at culture and storytelling now in society, you look at the Marvel Universe, you look at Star Wars, you look at, I don't know, name any other series you're interested in, I get literally any of them. The big trend nowadays is what's called the anti-hero motif, where the bad guy's actually the good guy, but is he actually like that good of a guy? Because he's pretty much a bad guy. But at the end of the movie, you're like, I really like that person, even though he's a murderer. <laughs> but what's interesting is we don't, re we're like not in our, like that doesn't, 
what we see is a bad person justified. And that doesn't equip us to understand and give grace and humility and compassion to other people for some reason. It just makes us go like, no, I'm right in how I am. <laughs> I am the anti-hero. This is great. But if you choose to practice this, whether you're watching a movie, reading a book, I strongly encourage reading the Bible. There's a lot of good characters that are not good or bad, and you have to wrestle with them. If you tap into that human experience and you actually sit with it and go, I really don't like so-and-so. How do I start to like someone like that? How can I understand them? This practice, this skill begins to happen naturally so that when you meet people, what ends up happening is, oh, I've met someone like this. I get it. This must be something they're experiencing. That's really hard. I probably will not be mad at them. Driving, perfect training ground. Because how many of you get cut off? I use a lot of four-letter words. Maybe a lot of horn action. Maybe you come up behind them really aggressively. But when you cut someone else off, you're offended that they would do the same things to you. Because our experience is the only experience until we're willing to see another person's experience. Until we're willing to see the shared humanity. The fact that so-and-so is in a hurry just like I'm in a hurry. They've got somewhere to be too. Their kid was late to the dentist just like mine. <laughs> There's a reason they're going this quick at 10.30 a.m. on a Thursday. These spaces are where we can practice compassion. Simple little moments. Because when those big moments arise, when the big question comes to the table, will you be a representative of Christ and an, initiate, an initiator of change? When the, when the son shows up at the table and says, Dad, can I go ahead and just take the money and go? Are, are you going to be trained and equipped and ready for that moment? I don't know. And then, even harder, when the son returns. Are you trained and equipped and ready to have already forgiven all of the suffering and loss and cost before they've returned to show compassion. I don't know. But that's the invitation I want to send you guys home with today. The invitation to be in a community and a body where that is our commitment to each other. That we will be the kinds of people who don't only just have compassion for ourselves, but for each other, recognizing that Christians are actually, I don't know if you know this, they're pretty well known at being not awesome all the time. We're kind of flawed, but that's the whole thing. We all said, yeah, when we walk in the door, we're saying, we're not great. I'm assuming you're not great either. Can we try to get better together? And that's a part of what this room is, this space, and that's what this table is. When we recognize that Christ's sacrifice on the cross is a reminder that in the face of all of the suffering, compassion is still an option. Forgiveness and grace and mercy is still an option, not only for ourselves, but for others. So let me pray real quick. Scott's going to come on up um, and administer the elements. So why don't you bow your heads with me. God, we love you so much and we thank you for today. God, we thank you that you have been a God of compassion and mercy to us. Lord, that you have created space for new life to be born. And I ask, God, that you would give us opportunities this week for us to practice compassion, to develop those spaces where new life can be born, to represent your son well and allow for the restoration of the world to happen through us as a consequence of your love and grace and mercy. Father, we love you, we thank you, and praise you in your son's great and holy name. Amen.